why don't you turn to Romans 11, and we'll look at verses 33 through 36 again this morning. And as we do that, I want to tell you a story that uh, I found uh, uh, that Chuck Swindoll uh, shares in relation to these verses that we're going to study. And here, here's what, it, what he says. He says, the Himalayan mountains rise four to five and one-half miles above sea level. Because of this, they have been the climber's dream since humankind first thought to climb mountains. However, no one attempted to scale them until 1920. Then, between 1920 and 1953, 11 expeditions attempted to reach the summit of the highest peak in the world, Mount Everest. If you want some great reading, then read about those who have attempted and have accomplished climbing Mount Everest. It's just quite uh, intriguing. There's some great books out there on it. Now, the first 10 of these 11 expeditions ended in failure and claimed the lives of George Mallory and Andrew Irvine, who were last sighted at a thousand feet below the peak and never seen alive again. Now, 29 years later, Sir Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa guide, Tenzing Norgay, answered the challenge of Everest with the ninth British expedition and reached the summit on May 29, 1953. And for the first time in known history, a human foot set down on the top of the world, 29,028 feet above sea level. Now, here's what's interesting. As far as we know, neither man recorded what he saw once he had reached the summit. Hillary explained how he climbed and why, but never described what he saw or how he felt as he surveyed the world from its pinnacle. Now, that, that's just interesting to me. Here's something, you're accomplishing something no one has ever done. You're seeing a vista that you've dreamt of, dreamt of you've sacrificed for, you've come near death because you have to go through near death to reach the top, and then you don't say anything about what you saw. Wendall says he suspects that he had no words to report. Who would? Well, here's the relevance for us today. 1,900 years earlier than that, the Apostle Paul sat in the city of ancient Corinth, and with the stylus in hand, and under the divine leadership of the Holy Spirit, he scaled the Mount Everest of theology as he wrote Romans 9 through 11, and, he, and as he finished the first half of the book of Romans. He has done and did what no one had that, up to that point had ever done. And, and, and he has reached the pinnacle, the summit of theology. And those of you that have been with us in this study, you have done the same thing. Now, you see in your notes, that's what we've been doing. We've been scaling to the mountaintop of God's majestic mission of mercy. And last week we went over the three base camps, the base camp of divine sovereignty. And the air got thin there. And then we moved on to human responsibility, and, and we thought we were going to find some comfort there, but the air was even more thin, and, and how that those two things go together is even more mysterious. And then we made the base camp glorious humility in chapter 11. But unlike Sir Edmund Hillary and unlike his Sherpa guide, Paul did record what he saw. He did record his reaction. He did record what should be said when anyone reaches the summit of this great 
theological mountain, and it's found for us in verses 33 through 36. So let's read it all along in verse 33. Oh, that's an exclamation. Just, oh, breathtaking. It takes my breath away. The depths or the unfathomableness of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Why is this? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now what did we find at the summit? We said last week, this is a doxology. And you need to be familiar with these because they come often in the New Testament. They come often in the writings of Paul. And, and we need to understand what they are. And, and we said last week, it's giving glory to God in word or song or deed. It's the word-fed and spirit-led spontaneous outburst of your soul at the top of a spiritual summit. And when we finish our study of Romans 9 through 11, we ought to just experience doxology. And what does that mean? Here's what we said. Doxology is delighting. It is delighting in giving God the glory he deserves in word, in deed, and in song. Doxology is delighting in giving God the glory he deserves in word, in song, and in life. Glory is what God deserves in light of what he does, his actions. And, and we said that a doxology always begins with what God does, his actions, and we describe them. And then we give him attributes and we, we affirm his character in light of what he's done. And, and we said what's interesting about this doxology is it seems like he skips God's actions, but that's only because all of Romans 9 through 11... In fact, all of Romans 1 through 11 are the actions of God because Romans begins with us in total depravity, totally undeserving, totally unable to offer anything to God. And then God moves in with justification by faith in Christ alone for salvation. And then he moves in and provides sanctification for us. And then he even promises us glorification and then he steps back in Romans 9 through 11 and explains this process in a mystery that reaches all the way back to unconditional election and yet doesn't eliminate human responsibility and in the end we're all guilty before God and unless God does something none of us would be saved now that is a lot that God is doing now, what attributes, what should we say about God in light of how he accomplishes our salvation? The answer, one answer, is here in verses 33 through 36. We should delight in giving God the glory that he deserves. So, how should we respond to the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy? We said that these verses divide up in three ways. And the first answer is in verse 33, and let's say it together. We should be saying... Oh, my God. Now, you got to put the emphasis on It's not like, oh, my God. Now, that may be how you started Romans 9 through 11. Oh, my God. But hopefully you finished 9 through 11 saying, oh, 
my God. So let's do that again. Oh, my God is awesome. He is awesome, verse 33 says. And then the second response to that ought to immediately be, who am I? Let's say that. Who am I? I am not awesome. He is awesome. And compared to him, I am not awesome. Who am I? And then finally, the third response we see in verse 36, the ultimate response is, give God the glory. So let's say all three together. Oh, my God, who am I? Give God the glory. And that's what Paul sees at the top of this theological summit, this this mountain of God's majesty, mercy, and mission for the lost. So last week we looked at the first response. Oh, my God. And we said the main idea was that word depth, the depth. It's unfathomable. It's something that we can never reach the bottom of. We can never reach the top of. We can never see from either side. It's just immeasurable. It's unfathomable. And we said that in that verse 33, different translations, sometimes they just emphasize his knowledge and his wisdom. But I think the best translation, and you're going to see this play out today, is that all three are being emphasized. His riches, which we said were the mercy of his riches, the fact that we are undeserving and we are spiritually bankrupt and God pours out on us the riches abundance of mercy to the undeserving. Riches, the mercy of God's riches are unfathomable. The second exclamation was, oh, The mission of God's wisdom is unfathomable. Wisdom is how you how you fulfill a plan, how you work out. You know, you you know a situation now. What's the right decision to make? And what's the order of those decisions? And and how should this play out in our in our lives? Well, God's wisdom in fulfilling the plan of salvation. Is unfathomable. God's working this out. And the irony is, we so often think he needs our help. In fact, we have all sorts of suggestions for him on who should be saved, how they should be saved. We, we have, we, we, maybe you came into this study with certain preconceived notions of, here's how I reason through this. Here's how I think through this. This is how salvation should be. And maybe those ideas have been challenged in this study. I, I, I hope they have because, because, my thinking needs to be challenged. In fact, it often needs to be repented. Of. It needs to be abandoned in order that I submit to God's wisdom as revealed in his word. Because for me to think that I could improve upon it is to say then my wisdom is greater than his. So we looked at the mission of God's wisdom is unfathomable. Then we saw that the majesty of God's knowledge is unfathomable. What he is emphasizing by the knowledge of God, because basically we're working backwards. You see the order and look at verse 33 in your Bible. We're working backwards. We're saying, oh, we've received mercy. But what God is that mercy? It was God's wisdom. But what is God's wisdom founded on? It's founded on God's knowledge. God knows what he is doing in bringing salvation to the world. And he knows it because he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows every outcome. 
He knows every possible outcome. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's not going to happen. He knows when we are going to screw it up, and he knows when we are going to submit to him. See, he, he's got all that covered, but his knowledge that's really been emphasized in Romans 9 through 11, and even in Romans 8, is his knowledge that before we were even born, he looked upon some sinners with just undeserving mercy, that I'm going to choose to love you. I'm going to choose to love them. And I'm going to choose to save them. And I'm going to save them in Christ. I'm going to save them through the preaching of the gospel. I'm going to save them by faith alone and Christ alone. But in my knowledge, in my divine, sovereign, majestic knowledge, I'm going to accomplish salvation in this way for Jew and Gentile alike. I'm sorry, but that's unfathomable. I just can't. I can't measure it. I can't get to the bottom of it. And then we say the fourth exclamation was this. Oh, the mystery of God's judgments are unsearchable and God's ways are untraceable. You see, that last statement that I just made about God's knowledge, I understand, can be challenged. Can be challenged. Wait a minute. I don't agree with that. And I would put forth to you, okay, first, we must challenge it by Scripture, not by reason. Because everybody's got an opinion, but they don't matter in light of what God's Word means. But then we need to back off and say, wait a minute, is that even? can we even challenge what is revealed in Scripture? Because ultimately what he's saying is, you know, well, let me back up. Here's what we say. Well, I don't like God choosing. That's the, let's, let's just get down to it. I just don't like God choosing. Would you agree? Isn't that, the, isn't that the rub? I don't want God having that choice. Who do we want to have that choice? Us. I don't want God to have that choice. Now, why do we want not God, want, do not want God to have that choice? There's many reasons, but ultimately it comes down to we don't think that God having that kind of choice is wisest, best, or fair, or just, all the things that have been dealt with in Romans 9. But please look at what he's saying in verse 33. Wait a minute. God's judgments are what? According to verse 33. They're what? They're unsearchable. They are unsearchable. The only thing we can really understand about God's judgments are what he reveals. You say, well, I don't like how this, this is playing out. And let's get, and, and, and again, we, many times we could care less about the rest of the world. It's, it's my aunt. It's my kids. It's my spouse that we, we, I don't like how this is playing out in my circle. Let's just be honest. We're really not concerned about justice for the world often. Am I the only one that has this self-centered perspective? We, do you understand what I'm saying? When you get underneath, why don't you like this? It always comes back to an individual person. But wait a minute. God's ways are what? According to verse 33. What are they? They're untraceable. They're past finding out. They, they, you, we can't connect the dots. Untraceable is like following a track and a trail. And, and we, we just can't put, fit the dots together. 
So before we object, let's step back and make sure that we understand that God's judgments and God's ways are a mystery. They're unsearchable. They're untraceable. Remember last week when I talked about uh, Gwen and I going up to see Lake Solitude, Grand Teton National Park, and we got up there and the snows were heavy and we're following a set of footprints but kind of got lost in them and we said, where's the trail? What was the answer back? There is no trail. And I'm telling you, if you will submit yourself to Scripture and you begin to study God's ways and God's judgments in salvation as revealed in Scripture, you will come to a point where you will say to God, Where's the trail? And God will say back to you, There is no trail. It's me. It's me that you are to trust. Because, see, His ways are unsearchable. They're untraceable. They're unfathomable. And so we should say, as it says in your notes, Oh, my God is awesome. He's awesome. Because what does he do with all this? What does he do with all this knowledge? What does he do with all this wisdom? What does he do with all of it? He shows mercy to the undeserving. That's why you can trust him. You said, I can't trust him unless he's fair. Listen, you don't want God to be fair. You want him to be merciful. Fairness means no one is saved. Mercy means some are saved. Some respond to his grace, place their faith in his son. You don't want to go postmodern on this and say what Paul is saying is, oh, no one can know anything, so believe what you want about salvation. No, he just revealed how God does it. Now he's saying, embrace that which is unsearchable. Embrace that which is untraceable. Embrace that which is unfathomable. Embrace your God. So this isn't postmodern relativism. No one can know anything. And everybody just come up with the God, make God in your image. We said, don't go pragmatic on this. Some would read this and say, this is why I skip. You see, there's pastors that skip Romans 9 through 11. They preach through Romans. They come to Romans 8, and then they see Romans 9 through 11, and they say things like, well, that's not practical. Let's move to Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The only problem, you know why we present our bodies as living sacrifices according to Romans 12, 1? By the mercies of God and the mercies of God have just been highlighted for us in Romans 9 through 11. You skip Romans 9 through 11, you just eliminated the basis for sacrificial living. Listen, the only thing that's going to inspire you to give your life completely to God is a sovereign, merciful God. That's the God that is laid out for us in Romans 9 through 11. So don't be postmodern, don't be pragmatic, be Pauline. Theologian. Be like Paul. That's what normal. Be like Paul. Study. Pray. Live out this ministry. You know, listen, as we bring this to a close, and obviously, you know, you know, there's mixed emotions here. I mean, I, I'm ready to move on, but some ways I don't want to move on. It's been such a privilege to be able to teach these chapters. For the last three, four weeks, all that's been filled in my heart was gratitude that I would be allowed in God's grace and mercy 
and that you would see fit, at least most of us, to come week after week anticipating hearing these difficult chapters. It's been a privilege. They easy, they comfortable, but it has been a joy. And we should study and pray and live out this mystery. And here's what it says. Oh, my God is awesome. Just look at the mystery of his majestic mission of mercy for all peoples, including the likes of me. I'm more convinced. This is the outline of these chapters. The mystery of God's majestic, meaning sovereign, mission, meaning reaching out to the lost with the gospel, of mercy, meaning that none are deserving, and my choices and my conduct and my birth and my behavior are in no way deserving or earning of God's favor to me. This is the message. This is the mystery. This ought to cause us to say, oh, my God, how awesome. Well, that leads us to the second response, and it's this. Who am I? Who am I? In light of God's amazing Mission of mercy. And so we see in verses 35 and 30, 34 and 35 questions that need no direct answer. You see, there's, there's three questions here, and they're all marked by who, who, who. Sounds like an owl is in the room. Because here's the thing. The reason his riches, knowledge, and wisdom is uncer- un- un- unfathomable, the reason his sovereign purposes in the world are unsearchable. The reasons his saving plan is untraceable is because of the answer to these three questions that don't even need expressed. Who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the expected answer? Who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift so as to make him indebted to us? That's why, and that's why, his purposes and plans are unfathomable. Because he's smarter than us, he's wiser than us, put it down, he is more giving and gracious. When you understand that, then you begin to say, you know what, I'm just going to trust this God, and I'm not going to put limitations upon him, I'm not going to limit him by my reasoning. In, in my sense of fairness, in my sense of justice, I'm just going to listen to what he reveals and submit myself to it. So let's, let's break these questions down and let's look at them. Question number one, and here's what question number one basically means. Who am I to think I can outthink God and figure out his mind? Who am I to think that I can outthink God and figure out his mind? And here's what he's trying to say. God's knowledge is so much greater than our own. It's majestic And it's sovereign. God's knowledge is so much greater than our own. It's majestic and knowledge. It's majestic and sovereign. Ours 
is not. Now, look at who he's referring to. He's quoting a passage from Isaiah 40. And in this passage in Isaiah 40, it's verse 40, 13. And I went ahead and put it in your notes just so that you, you have it right there. Notice verse 13, he's referring to this. Who has, who has directed who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? And the idea there of the Spirit of the Lord can also be translated the idea of the mind or the, you know, the, the knowledge of the Lord. So who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or the mind of the Lord and who or as his counselor has informed him. But I want you to see the verses that precede and follow. Notice verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in the balance and the hills in a pair of scales. So he takes Mount Everest and he just picks it up with his his finger and his pinches between his finger and his thumb and just places it on a scale. Boink! Boink! He takes the universe and he just opens his hand and he says, I think today I'm going to measure the universe. What? Now, what do you do? I mean, you know, I, I was sitting there, okay, now what do we, when we want to measure, so, okay, I'm going to measure this Bible with my hand. Okay, it's a, it's a hand span, which means basically what? means that I can hold it, I can control it. I mean, it's not bigger than me. I can care for it and I can protect it. It's a span's width. Look at what he just says about, and mark off the heavens by the span. Okay. Beep. Now I was going to show you something, but because I moved my computer over here, I forgot to plug it in, so my battery died on Sorry. But listen, the known universe, we're, we're, we're stretching out to the known universe in ways that, that uh, man has never done of mankind. And the universe is huge and infinitely small, but here's the point. And, and scientists even admit this, that we, the universe is far larger than what we know. Okay? And yet God says, wink, fan of my hand. Then, in the middle of this, he says, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Who's going to be his counselor? This guy, this is how big he is. And any little me, little me, hey, God, I know better. God, I, I don't agree with that. God, I, 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 I would do it this way. Like, he can't, I mean, he looks at his hand, he's like, he doesn't even he if he he doesn't even hear it if that's what he so chooses. It's insignificant. Are you getting the picture? Who are we now? Now read on though. Look at verses fourteen and fifteen. With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? See, this is why Paul quoted this. He's saying he, he wants you to go back to Isaiah, and he wants you to read your Old Testament and realize it's crazy to think that I have taught God anything, that my wisdom is greater than his, that I'm going to tell him what's fair. And what's not fair, and it's got to, and, and here's the deal. Fairness and justice and salvation has to fit into my puny little mind. 
If it doesn't make sense to me, if it's not fair to me, then I'm going to reject it. Okay. You're free to do that. But what is that saying in light of these verses? Then look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. You see, that's in the Bible. So many of our sayings are in the Bible. Drop in the bucket. That's just a drop in the bucket. That's what God says about the nations. What is Romans 9 through 11 all about? The nations. And he's saying, look, they're a drop in the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Remember, he said he takes Mount, Mount Everest on the scales and he's saying the nations compared to that are dust on the scale. They don't even, they don't even tilt it. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine. Well, what's the point of that? Who am I to think I can reason all this out? Who am I to think I can understand all of this without studying God's word and submitting my will to his will in prayer by the Holy Spirit? I want you to understand, it doesn't mean that we can't know the mind of God. It means this, I cannot know the mind of God by sheer reasoning and apart from submitting to the word of God. If I pray for the Spirit to enlighten me, and if I submit myself to what's revealed, for example, in Romans 9 through 11, then I can know the mind of the Lord. But no other way can I accomplish. So here's the point. Who am I in the light of the majesty of God's knowledge? I am no one, and I must admit I am spiritually ignorant. Okay, I'm ignorant. God, you got the knowledge. I'm the ignorant one. You teach me. Question number two. Who am I to think I can outmaneuver God and give him advice? We already saw this is also a quote from Isaiah 40, 13. And here's the idea. God's wisdom is so much greater than our own. It's missional and strategic. Ours is not. You see, we think we can plan out the salvation of the world. We think we can plan out our own salvation, the salvation of our neighbor and our coworkers, and God saying, look, his wisdom is so much greater. We, he is not consulting us on salvation. He's not consulting us on missions. You know, I, I get the biggest kick, and, and there, there's a place for these, but we always have these global conferences on missions and how we're going to accomplish world missions by, well, last time we tried, it was by... 2000 and then i think it was 2004 and we and, and, and there's a place there's a place for setting goals and trying to reach the world for christ we have been given a commission to go to all peoples with the gospel amen but the idea that somehow we're going to improve upon god's wisdom for reaching the nation is well it's not wise to do who am i to think i can advise god on who to save and how to save them who am I to think I know better who should be in heaven and who should be in hell? Who am I to say who gets a second chance and who does not? Who am I to say that God's wrath should be temporary and not eternal? Who am I to think that I can come up with a better plan of salvation than the one revealed in the gospel and centered in Christ and his cross? Who am I? The answer is what? No one. No one. So who am I in the light of... The mission of God's wisdom. I am no one. I must admit that I don't have a clue spiritually. I'm a fool. I'm a spiritual fool. 
in light of God's wisdom. I'm spiritually ignorant in light of God's knowledge. That's what he's, that's what he's driving home. Apart from God's wisdom revealed in Scripture, I don't know, I don't know a thing about how lead, to lead someone to Christ. Let me just make this application. That's the reason so many of us are silent and disobedient witnesses. Because we think we're wiser than him. He said, go. And we think we know when to go. And he says, go. He says, go and make disciples. Go preach the gospel. And we think we're wiser than him because we think, well, if I preach the gospel, they'll reject. Well, folks, if we don't preach it, they won't accept. And besides, he told us to preach. He told us to proclaim. He told us to share. We think we're wiser. We think we know better. We think we know lost people better than he does. I, I, I mean, I'm just looking at my own life. That's what it has to come down to. I think I know better. And I'm wiser and I know how to lead people to Christ. When he says, go and share the love of Jesus. That's tough stuff. I'm a, I don't have a spiritual clue. I don't have a clue spiritually. I'm a fool. Question number three. Who am I to think I can outgive God and make him my debtor? Now, this is the richness of this. We go from knowledge to wisdom to being indebted and owing and needing mercy. And notice what he says in verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, here's the idea. Who am I to think I can outgive God and make him my debtor? Now, let me share with you two verses in the Old Testament that Paul might have in mind in terms of God owning it all. Listen to Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those therein. Okay, God's pretty rich. He doesn't not only own a cattle on a thousand hills, he owns what? He owns the hills. Very good. He owns it all. Now, listen to Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. And yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Here's what he's saying. This is why you've got to understand this. God owns everything. He needs nothing and no one. And yet, he unconditionally shows you. you. Why would he do that? Because somehow I could add something to him? No, he, he owns it all. He already owned me. Because somehow I, I, he was indebted to me? No. That's what this verse just says. He owns this, you know, this universe that is so expanding and so minute that he can measure with his hand. See, he owns all that. And out of that, on this third planet from the sun, these people made of dust, he has looked down, who have rebelled against him and deserve to be forever judged. He's looked down and he has said, and I want you. Oh, because you knew I would choose you? You've got you have that God somehow needs us 
and is going to base all of his mercy on something we have done. Mercy no longer is mercy if that's the Not because he, we have chosen him. It's because he has chosen us. And in choosing us, we choose him when we hear the gospel. Well, he's quoting what I think is one of the greatest books on the Bible to answer some of the toughest questions in all of life. Quoting the book of Job. Quoting the book of Job. And here's what he's saying. God's riches are so much greater than our own. They are merciful and saving. Ours are not. Listen, if we were God... And if God was running the universe based on our wisdom and knowledge, we would be saved because we deserve it, and then the people we determine are worthy of it would be saved. But we wouldn't it just it just wouldn't be playing out like it's playing out. People that we, that are going to heaven, we'd say, You've got to be kidding. And people that are going to hell, we'd say, What? You've blown that, God. And the reality is. His mercy is greater than ours. So that, as one uh, of my church history profs said, and, and I've never forgotten, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who is there. We're going to be surprised at who's not there. We'll be surprised in light of that, that we're there. That's when, when salvation is based on grace. That's how it is. This doesn't line up with human judgment. Now, what's he quoting? Let's look at Job. He's quoting, he's quoting Job 41.11. So I want you to turn back to Job. Because here's what I'm more convinced of than ever. Having, I mean, this is probably one of the main things that I've learned in going through Romans 9 through 11. And it's this, that when Paul quotes one verse of, a, of the Old Testament, he's, he's, only, he's not proof texting. See, we love to go to one verse out of context and say there. But when Paul is quoting one verse out of the Old Testament in Romans, at least in Romans 9 through 11, he is referencing chapters of the context. And he says, go to this verse because this is like the main idea, but I want you to read chapters of the Old Testament around that verse, and it's going to make sense. Well, let's look at Job 41, and let's look at verse 11. And here's what he's quoting. Who has first given to me? that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Okay, now, why is he, what, what, what about this context? What about the chapters and the verses around this? Well, I would take you back. Chapter 41 is a part of the last chapters of Job, and it goes from Job 38 to 42. So turn back to Job 38. Now, you know the book of Job. The reason we don't like the book of Job is for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons we often don't like the book of Job is for 37 chapters, these three friends uh, and Job are just griping, complaining, and criticizing, and questioning, and ultimately Job is questioning and criticizing and calling God to account. And, And he's not sinning against God, but he's just saying, God, get down here, because I'd like to have a little chit chat with you, because life just isn't going the way I think it all. Life's just not fair. Life, I'm suffering, and these guys are saying because of my sin, and yet in my heart of hearts, I know I'm right with you. Why? 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 Okay. 37 chapters. And the reason it gets tedious, because God hasn't spoken yet. That's why it's tedious. 
for 37 chapters, it's just like us. Talking to one another. Questioning God. Saying, well, if I was God, or why doesn't God answer my prayer? You know, I mean, we've all been there. I've, I've, we, we live there. That's where, I mean, we, we, we've been there. Then in verse 30, in chapter 38, verse 1, God speaks. Then the Lord answered Job, and knows he answers him out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, out of power, out of majesty, out of fear, out of a tornado. He comes like a tornado. And what do tornadoes do? They're, they're, they, 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 in light of a tornado, we become what we really are. Whimpering, weak, powerless. So he speaks. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Oh, does that sound like Romans 11? Dress for action. Like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. See, he's been questioning God through all this. And God says, okay, you wanted a little one-on-one with me? You wanted a little face-to-face time with me? You wanted me to answer your questions? Well, I'm here to remind you that I am the creator. You are the created. I ask the question. Thus, God's got questions. And remember what we learned last week. When God asks questions, it's to make us rethink our beliefs and our behavior. And so he says, okay, you want man up. Let's go toe-to-toe. Let's go face-to-face. I will question you, and you, in your great wisdom, with your sense of justice and knowledge, with your vast understanding, Job, answer my question. And then he goes. And it's question after question after question. And the first one sums up them all. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job says, I am in. I'm I'm in big. This is not going to go well. You ever been in an interview, someone asks a question, and the first question, you know, been on a sales, and the first question you're unprepared for, and you're like, could we just kind of reschedule this? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Remember, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And what were its where what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in this? And then he just goes on. And then he says, verse 12, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Uh, Ever made? Don't be so hard on those weathermen. Some of you are so hard on the weathermen. You're so hard. They don't claim to be God. They claim to be weathermen. They can't predict this stuff. 18. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? You ever done those studies on the ocean? There's things down there that no man is, and the, and they're beautiful. In their neon for phosphorus glow, they give glory to God in the depths. And it just goes on. He goes on, and he goes on. 
Verse 30, uh, chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving, the calving, the calving of the, of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? I mean, listen, we can't even control physical birth. You think we're going to control spiritual birth? And he goes on. And then he finds, and then he comes to uh, chapter 40. Now look at chapter 40. We're still not at chapter 41 yet, but look at chapter 40. And, 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 and because God's gracious, he says this in chapter 40, verse 2. And the Lord said to Job, I mean, he just, he, he, he's just unrelenting with these questions. And then he says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And this is what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord. Now, we ought to be on the edge of our... I'd lo- you know, what is Job going to say to this? Behold, I am of small account. Biggest understatement in the Bible. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will preach. Here's what he does. So then he goes on, and, 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 but God's not done. God says, well, good, you're learning. Keep that hand over your mouth, and I'll ask a few more questions. So he asks a few more questions, of which chapter 41, verse 11 is found, and then he comes to the end, chapter 42. He is done, and then the Job, then Job answered the Lord and said, and here's what he says, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours. Your judgments are unsearchable. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Who am I? Who am I? See, when he quotes one verse, he wants you to read those chapters. He wants you to read. Who am I to think I can earn my way to heaven? I can offer anything to God He is already that He has not already given me. Who am I to think God owes me anything, much less eternal life? Who am I to think God is my creditor and He is my debtor? Who am I in light of God's riches? I must declare I am spiritually bankrupt. I cannot outthink God. I cannot outmaneuver God. I cannot outgive God. I give Him my faith, and He doesn't. And He doesn't owe me anything. I can give Him my repentance, and He doesn't owe me anything because He already owned it all. Now, look in your notes. I got a little geeky and greeky and textual on you, but I'm sorry. I believe in an inspired Bible and an inspired text, which means God even uh, controls the structure of our passages. And I just wanted to give you this richness here, and I want you to see it. And notice what it says. Entering into the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. 
the way God has laid out the structure of these verses is to take you into the very depths of his mystery, mystery of his of his sovereignty, of his mercy, and then he walks us out of it. Or, or if you turn that, do you see how it goes in and then it comes out on your notes? You could turn it upward and it's like going up the mountain and here's what we say coming back down. Now notice how he lays this out. Beginning in verse 33, all oh, the depths of God's riches, focus there is on mercy. All oh, the depths of God's wisdom, the focus there is on his mission to save mankind, all peoples. Oh, the depths of God's knowledge. So we go from, he shows mercy in based on his plan, his wise plan, which is then driven by his sovereign knowledge. And when you get to his sovereign knowledge, you start going, whoa. And what do you see? His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are untraceable. That's the heart of these verses. Then you move back out and he takes you once again, who has known God's mind and then who has been God's counselor, which has to do with wisdom again, and who has given God anything and made him a debtor. In other words, we need his mercy. Do you see the beauty of that? So you really, at the heart of this is, God, I can't figure you out. That's at the heart of it. And so you move. You say, like, how did I get saved? It was God's wisdom. But where's his wisdom come from? It's from his sovereign knowledge. Whoa, I'm in over my head. Now I'm going to come, I'm going to back out and I'm going to back out like Job. And I'm going to say, whoa, who can know God's mind? Whoa, who could advise him on how to do this? Whoa, he doesn't owe me anything. Well, what's left? For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. And I've laid it out for you. Who are we in light of? First of all, God's mysterious purposes are at the center. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways are untraceable. That leads us to God. Out of that mysterious purpose comes his divine sovereignty, as we saw in Romans 9, his majestic foreknowledge, his, his knowledge. And out of that comes his missional wisdom, where he sends the gospel around the world human responsibility in Romans 10, and that results in God's merciful riches for Jew and Gentile. And there's a global humility that says, all have sinned, none deserve heaven, and yet you have chosen some, and through the gospel, I respond. And there's only one response. To him be the glory. To him be the glory. To him be the glory. And so that leads us to the third response. Give God all the glory. Give God all the glory. And the explanation is really doesn't need explaining. Explanation number one is this. All things are from God. He is the source of all things. He is the source of all things. Even judgment, even hell, all of these are found. Even sin is not out of his control. He doesn't cause it, but it's not beyond him. It doesn't surprise him. His plan allows for it and provides a solution to it. Number two, explanation number two, all things are through God. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the sustainer. And then explanation number three, all things are for God. He is sovereign over all things. All things are from him, through him, and to him. You say, that doesn't leave much room for us. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't leave any room for us to take any glory or credit. And so we should delight in giving him all the glory and we and he deserves all the glory. So we should delight in giving him all the glory. And let me just say this and we'll, 
I really thought long and hard. Look at that last verse. To God be the glory. How? What's that mean? What's that mean? And how do you know if you're doing it? What's that mean? How do you know if you're doing it? You know what the answer is? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Romans 1 through 11, particularly 9 through 11, all are in undeserving, all are imprisoned in, 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 in their sin, but God grants mercy to all peoples through the gospel. By the mercies of God, here's how you give God the glory. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. It's beautiful. I said in this that a doxology is delighting and giving God the glory in word. We saw the words in song. This is a Romans eleven thirty three through 36 is a hymn. It's a song and in life. And the life part is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, listen. I have fallen short of these passages in explaining. They are beyond. I have been, I am, I am, I belong in the waiting pool and we have been in the deep end. I have done my best. But I beg God in his grace and in his mercy that you have a better understanding of God's riches of mercy, God's wisdom and his mission towards the lost and God's majestic knowledge. I hope that there is greater doxology in your heart today. And I would beg you to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Forsake the world's ideas of sexual immorality. Forsake the world's ideas of pursuing material wealth. Forsake conformity to the world and give glory to God and say, I'm all yours. That's what we need to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to me. You have impressed upon me again and again through the study how undeserving and how much my salvation is not based on me being raised in a good home, going to church all my life, seeking you, responding to the gospel. Ultimately, it's not rooted in those things. It's rooted in your grace. It's rooted in your sovereign purposes. It's rooted in your unconditional covenant love. It's rooted in you. Now, Lord, help me to give you the glory by finishing my life as a living sacrifice in your service. And I pray for these folks. This has been hard, perhaps made harder by my limitations. But, Father, I pray that your spirit, word, has implanted your glory and that we will delight giving our bodies, our lives, our minds, our hearts to you. You have been so gracious, so merciful to us. We give you the glory. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.